This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. I want our army to keep going on a trajectory where they realize that talent comes from all directions and talent takes all shapes and sizes and that leadership isn't one size fits all. I think we're headed in that direction. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is focusing on women in the military and featuring conversations about leadership, air, space, and cyber issues, surveillance, and intelligence. The COVID-19 pandemic has certainly put leaders and their leadership skills in the spotlight. And in this episode, I talk to retired and active duty military women about how to lead during a crisis. I spoke with Brigadier General Paula Lodi, Deputy Commanding General Support, U.S. Army Medical Command. Colonel Kirsten Aguilar, Commander, Joint Base Elmendorf-Richardson and the 673rd Air Base Wing. Army Reservist Major Asha Castleberry, currently Senior Advisor to the Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs at the State Department. And Dr. Samantha Weeks, a retired Air Force Commander, 14th Flying Training Wing, Columbus Air Force Base, Mississippi. This podcast was recorded before the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. Brigadier General Lodi, Colonel Aguilar, Major Castleberry and Dr. Weeks, thank you all so much for joining me here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Welcome. I'm glad to have all of you with me today. This podcast is all about leadership, and you're all certainly leaders. And I want to start out just with the situation we find ourselves in now, and that's dealing with the COVID pandemic and the lessons that you've learned in leadership throughout the past 18 months. You've all, I'm sure, had your leadership skills put to the test during this time. So starting with you, Colonel Aguilar, what is it like to lead at Joint Base Elmendorf during this time, during this pandemic? First of all, thank you very much for having me on this podcast. It's really an honor to not only represent the Air Force, but to represent the team here in Alaska. And so I joined the the team in Alaska at Joint Base Elmendorf-Richardson as the installation commander and wing commander last summer. So my family and I actually moved during the pandemic. We moved from Colorado to Alaska. I've got three children. My oldest is in college, and then I've got two that are school-age children. And leading through the pandemic certainly has been challenging and unique for multiple reasons. You know, it is reinforce that our top priority in the military, specifically here in Alaska, where we project power and defend our nation every day, but our priority has been the health and safety of our personnel. And, and how, do, how do we, the Department of Defense, continue to fight with the virus's presence to accomplish the mission, specifically here, that all four services have asked us to do? Um, there's no playbook per se, for how to fight through this challenge. Um, but what I have seen here in the J-Bear community is the resilience of our service members and our families. But what I would say has been a, a big component of our success here is just the transparency in our messaging. So as I mentioned, I'm, I'm a mother and I have two school-age children. My daughter actually started kindergarten last fall. And so our schools were in a virtual environment as most places were. And so whether it was in a town hall meeting or just talking with people as we did our battlefield circulation around the installation, you know, I let people know I'm I'm struggling with a lot of the same 
challenges that, that you are. The Aguilar family is, is not immune from the challenges that our families are facing. And I found that being transparent and being open, letting people see that you truly understand what they're, they're going through, they may not still like the, the decisions, but they at least appreciate that there is an acknowledgement that we're asking a lot of our, of our service members and their families. But what I've, again, what I've seen is the, the resiliency of our service members and our families and finding a way to make sure that the mission happens regardless of the circumstances. And Dr. Weeks, before you retired, you were at Columbus Air Force Base as the wing commander. And of course, you had a variety of challenges, including leading the base at the start of the pandemic. Talk about how you led and respond, if you will, to uh, Colonel Aguilar and uh, the things that she raised about what it's been like for her. So I can agree completely with Kirsten's comments. I <clears throat> excuse me, am also a mom of very young children. At the time, last May and April, I had a two-and-a-half-year-old and a, a four-and-a-half-year-old while I was commanding a wing of 3,000 people and $2.8 billion of assets. And when COVID hit in March and we started to really try to understand what was going on and what protections we needed to take and make while still accomplishing our mission, there's no playbook for that. The United States hadn't seen a pandemic like that that affected everything from home life to work life and the ways it impacted national defense. And obviously, the majority of our people were scared and concerned about what was this virus and how would it affect us. And obviously, a pilot training mission is absolutely paramount to national defense because we need pilots and any stop in that mission has an impact for the next decade to two decades. And we needed to find a way to safely accomplish the mission while taking care of our airmen and their families and our community. And I would say the number one thing that I tried to do and accomplish from the get-go was communicate with all the people, not just the airmen on my base, not just their families, but my local city community and our county, and make sure that we tried our best to have one standard and one way of tackling this problem from a community standpoint. And so I put myself out there on YouTube and FaceTime videos every day to every two days to really keep people in the know as much as I could and share the information and be an open door to receive any type of questions or comments or thoughts that they had. Major Castleberry, let's talk about your work. You're at the State Department currently, and that's a bit different from your role as an Army reservist. But what are some lessons that you've learned in your in your training as a reservist that you've been able to apply as you transition to the State Department for your work right now in dealing with COVID? There's a lot of lessons I've learned, you know, just being able to serve prior to the, uh, joining the Biden-Harris administration. One is that, you know, being able to obtain a lot of operational tactical experiences in the Middle East, especially working with women in the health services, really helped me a whole lot in, as far as influencing policy at the State Department. Like, for instance, if you look at Jordan, where I had the opportunity to train and work with uh, Jordan Armed Forces, where they are right now the most progressive army involving women's leadership or having a lot of women serve in, in their military, 
they are most of them are skewed as uh, serving in the uh, medical corps. So um, I've been I actually had the opportunity to serve on medical exchanges, medical engagements with a lot of women involved in medical services. Now, there's a there's a one thing I would say that's great about that and also a disadvantage where a lot of women are too much skewed into the medical side of it or the service support aspect of the armed forces versus being also having the opportunity to serve in combat arms or those type of military specialties. But the advantage is that now that we're dealing with the pandemic, we have women who are frontliners in as far as being having uh, showing their expertise in addressing these issues. So it's it, there's an advantage and a disadvantage as far as having women more involved in the medical services when it comes to uh, serving in the military. And I was able to have a lot of insight and train up on uh, train with a lot of women in the service, especially in Jordan, involved in medical uh, or, or health security issues. Mm-hmm. And Brigadier General Lodi, I, I purposefully saved you to come in last on this question about dealing with COVID because in July you recently became the Deputy Commanding General Support U.S. Army Medical Command. Talk a bit about the role MedCom plays in handling the pandemic. Yes. Yeah, so first of all, again, thank you for allowing me to uh, participate in this great panel, uh, this great conversation, important conversation, and to represent the Army and U.S. Army Medical Command. I have been incredibly fortunate to have a number of key leadership roles during the pandemic. Uh, When the pandemic was first starting to reveal itself as a global issue, maybe a year and a half ago, I was the director of healthcare operations working for the Army Surgeon General. I was sent for a 90-day period over to Europe when uh, Europe was really trending high in COVID, Italy in particular, to support uh, U.S. Army Europe in their response efforts and advise uh, the general uh, the generals there and senior leaders there in how to respond and organize a response that would enable them to maintain a proper level of readiness. I came back from Europe in June of last year and took command of the Army's Regional Health Command Atlantic, which basically uh, is all healthcare, public health, dental enabling, Army enabling from New York, upstate New York, down to Puerto Rico and all the way out to Wisconsin. And so really spent the last year before transitioning down here to San Antonio, managing the Army's healthcare assets in its fight against COVID. I've been incredibly proud to see the Army and Army medicine in particular be integral to the Department of Defense's efforts and to see the Department of Defense be integral to the whole of nation response. I've been really fortunate to be able to lead and see all of Army medicine's capability be employed in the fight against COVID-19. Uh, from its public health assets to its laboratory capability, doing all the testing both on our Army installations and out in the community, to the rollout of the vaccine, to the development of clinics and drive-through pharmacies and other innovations with virtual health uh, that helped keep our um, patients well cared for and minimizing exposure. Uh, And then I've watched really some of the heartbreaking um, and backbreaking efforts that our great nurses and doctors have put forth in terms of uh, taking care of patients, our, our sickest patients in the in our ICUs and ICWs, both on our installations and being deployed out into the communities to help help where the community 
capacity became exceeded. And then finally, um, something we don't we don't always talk about or see is the the great research labs that we have up in Maryland that really were on the cutting edge of um, helping the Department of Defense develop technology and develop vaccines and contribute to that effort. I, I would just say, being that this is a uh, leadership conversation, leading in all that uh, changing environment and ambiguity was quite a challenge, but it also presented a number of opportunities for us. I would say my perspective, our ability to operationalize all the emerging guidance and all the changing, um, changing procedures as we learned more about the vaccine was, was a great leadership opportunity. The ability, working in the medical field, the ability to distill very complex information into easily understandable and actionable things for our warfighting commanders was key. And, and our ability as leaders to just instill confidence that even though the guidance or the information was rapidly changing, just to instill that confidence that, that we could push through this pandemic was really key. And so I've, I've learned a tremendous amount over the course of this pandemic. And I've, of course, as you said, I find myself now recently uh, arrived down to um, Joint Base San Antonio. And um, unfortunately, where our numbers are trending up again uh, with the Delta variant, we'll get to uh, showcase some of our agility, unfortunately, once again. General Lodi, if I could pull the string on this leadership point here and ask about the specific skills that it takes, because all of you have large numbers of people looking to you for answers in a time when the answers are changing as we go through this pandemic and there are different variants of the virus. And it's not just you give one answer and that's the answer. It's you give one answer and then you get new information and there may be a completely different answer the next day or the next week. And how important is it in terms of leadership to build trust with the people that are you know, are following you in order to get them to do the things that they need to do? There's lots of talk about the, the vaccines and people not being willing to get it, and that's in the civilian population. But having people who trust you when you say, I need you to go and do X, talk about the importance of, that, of the trust in a situation like this. Yeah, I think especially, as you say, the conditions were constantly changing, overlaid with medical being, you know, and this problem set in particular being very dependent on very technical, scientific knowledge. There is a level of trust in that it requires a lot of disparate expertise to come to the table to really get the best approach and the best guidance. So the trust has to be there that people will be listened to, their expertise will be factored into whatever the leader is trying to deal with at the time, and that the people will be heard and their expertise will be, will be considered. Conversely, um, those that are being advised, if they are not medical or technical oriented, there, there's a deliberateness and a decisiveness that's required because uh, in the scientific realm, you know, you can get paralysis by analysis fairly easy 
when what is required is a bit of, I don't have all the answers, but I, I must be decisive because we, we can't just sit um, spiraling into, into a problem, if, if that makes sense. So I think there's a trust within the organization that everybody's expertise is going to come to the table for the best outcome. And then there's a level of trust that has to be achieved with the people who aren't subject matter experts, but need that decisiveness in order to lead effectively in a very, what is a very complicated and, and, and wicked problem. Colonel Aguilar? So I agree with General Lodi. A, a big part of it is is not getting emotional in your decision making. And in this case, it's very heavily reliant upon what the science is telling us. And so again, to go back to my, my original point about transparency, I mean, sometimes I would I would tell people, you know, I, I don't know, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to continue to listen to our medical experts. I'm going to you know, analyze what the, the science is telling us, and we're going to make the best decisions that we can to safeguard our community. Do I think that we made the right decision every single moment of every single time? No, but do I think we made the best decisions based on the information that we had at the time? Yes, and we, we did adjust as the, as the virus is, was evolving and as it continues to evolve. And so I think it is okay to be vulnerable as a leader um, because that demonstrates to, to the people that you are charged with, with protecting and leading that you are willing to listen and that sometimes you don't have all the information but being confident in your decision-making, that instills that confidence and that trust in others. And again, I think just acknowledging what people are going through, being willing to listen, even if you don't have the answers, sometimes people just need to know that somebody is listening and acknowledging that, that this is a difficult time. And our motto here has been from the beginning that we are in this together. Um, and that includes our families, um, our community. To Dr. Weeks's points, uh, you know, constant conversation with the, the mayor. And I got a chance to speak with the governor at one point. And I just think understanding what everyone was going through, um, but not being afraid to, to just be vulnerable, if you will. And sometimes explain your rationale for your decision making. Again, it, it may not, people may not like the end result, but at least knowing that you are willing to share and let them in, it helps. You all are the best of the best, and I want to transition a bit to talking about your personal journeys in leadership as a woman in the military. When you first joined the military, did moving up to a top leadership spot like the ones that General Lodi and Colonel Aguilar, you occupy now, and Dr. Weeks, you occupied when you were a wing commander, and uh, Major Castleberry when you were serving in Iraq and Kuwait, did it seem plausible at the time? I want to hear from you personally about your climb to the to the top positions that, that you occupy and talk about some of the barriers that may still remain for women in the military. Dr. Weeks, can we start with you? Yeah, I'd love to because I'm the retired person. Uh, so maybe a little bit of the most flexibility to speak. When I was six years old in 1981, to put everybody, you know, into the time frame, I decided I wanted to become a female fighter pilot. And my dad, who was an enlisted maintainer in the Air Force, told me, Girls don't do that. And that kind of set the stage for me to think in my head and pursue everything from that point on till today. Tell me no and watch me go. And I stayed true to my dream. And in 1991, Congress lifted the ban allowing women to become fighter pilots. And in 1993, Secretary of Defense Les Aspen ordered the Air Force and the Navy to open up combat 
cockpits to female aviators. And so now, as I entered the Air Force Academy, a dream could become a reality. I became an F-15C pilot, and in 1998, and truly, my dream had come full circle as I went to a tanker in my fighter for the first time over the Gulf of Mexico. It was not all easy sailing, though, over the last 23 years of active duty service. Most of the men in my first fighter squadron had never been exposed to a female aviator, and there was apprehension of the unknown. I was told early on that 25% of the men would be my cheerleaders, 50% wouldn't care, just go do your job and do it well, and 25% fear would probably hold them back from embracing this change. That was definitely true in 1998 and 1999, but by the time I retired, I definitely feel the percentage changed. I had a lot more supporters. I had a lot greater percentage of people who just said, go do your job. And then there are one or two, you know, people all the time, no matter where you are and what you do, that are going to try to put roadblocks in your way. But you have to believe in yourself and you have to try and throw your hat in the ring in anything that you want to set your sights on. I'd say that the place that I speak today and I'm very passionate about opening up and shedding light on is the implicit bias that still exists in society and in our workplace. And to have a senior leader tell a female officer that you need to talk less and smile more carries with it such pressure and bias that it actually has been research accomplished on it that this can actually hold back and limit a female leader. And we need to just highlight these everyday occurrences that occur that people aren't really thinking of, they don't really understand the implications of in order to bring awareness so that we can bring self-reflection, so that we can change our individual behaviors, so that we can change the collective culture, again, of our organizations and our institutions. And there's still work to be done in that vein across the spectrum of women, of race, of gender, of sexual orientation, and all of the other areas and categories where we are different and bring that diversity to the table to make our organizations better. And I would say that the Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, Joe Bass, probably said it best that diversity is a reality, but inclusion is a choice. And then I would say, really, we need to choose to be inclusive, and that is going to bring belonging for every single person to bring their whole self to work and everything that they bring to the organization to make us the best military in the world or the best organization that we're a part of. And I should tell our listeners that uh, Dr. Weeks was the first female solo demonstration pilot with the Thunderbirds, which is an incredible accomplishment. I want to turn to uh, Major Castleberry to talk about some of the leadership challenges you may have faced, or let me ask you, uh, what were some of the leadership challenges you faced specifically as a, a woman of color, and how did you handle them given that you were serving outside the United States? Did that make these challenges easier or more difficult to handle? I would say as far as leadership challenges, uh, I dealt a lot with unconscious bias. So when I was assigned to my first assignment as a uh, to do work as a foreign area officer, to be more detailed, uh, work very closely with our Gulf partners on uh, planning exercises, engagements, interoperability, uh, just 
boosting so much in terms of security cooperation activities. Uh, it required to meet with a military that had no female representation. So I thought my commander was uh, a little bit crazy to assign me to work on this, but I moved forward and I noticed that throughout my assignment, there was some unconscious bias where people thought that I was more of the admin person. That I was just someone who just uh, take notes when it came to meetings. I wasn't the advisor. I wasn't, you know, knowledgeable on on combat um, operations or just operations overall. And it was just very disappointing. I also dealt with a lot with the lack of representation of women when it came to serving in a lot of these uh, positions at that time. Matter of fact, I had one of my supervisors tell me that we will never see a CENTCOM commander that that will be a woman. A woman will never serve that position. The U.S. military will never, never assign that to a woman. So when you're hearing those type of things from a supervisor, you know, it's very, it's discouraging, but there's a dichotomy to it as well. I've noticed as a woman of color, you know, there was some disadvantage of dealing with, you know, unconscious bias, lack of representation, but working with um, our partners overseas actually was a great experience. And uh, in fact, I dealt with less unconscious bias dealing with a lot of our Gulf partners. So I thought that was uh, pretty interesting to watch and uh, to experience. And I felt more appreciated serving my country and working with our allies, knowing that my contributions are an asset instead of a liability. Uh, and, you know, as how did I deal with it? Well, uh, as mentioned before, just having the confidence, the will, the leadership to speak out on these issues, especially to your commander in, you know, and not being afraid of it. I'll give you one example, too. When I uh, served over on an exercise in Nicaragua under Southcom, um, I had to promote uh, the importance of U.N. Resolution 1345, which is trying to get more women in the upper ranks in peacekeeping operations. And I remember actually discussing this issue in front of a, a group of men that served in all uh, over 22 armies uh, throughout the Caribbean and Latin America. And as I was speaking about it, they were laughing at me and it because they did not take this resolution serious. And so I kept doing it. I kept promoting and I because I knew at the end of the day, this is a principle that we have to embrace despite the challenges that we face, especially those cultural norms that need to erode over time in order to uh, respect more women in, in leadership positions. Mm -hmm. Brigadier General Lodi and uh, Colonel Aguilar. What are your thoughts on this, General Lodi? I joined the Army in the 90s, and there were some very specific, even in the medical field, much more inclusive of women than other, other areas of the Army. And there were assignments that simply weren't available to me because of my gender. So I, that's, that's the point from which I start my career. And I've been incredibly proud to see our senior leaders evolve to break down some of the harder, hard and fast institutional barriers to women. I would say I, you know, I spent my entire career was achieving where I'm at currently at in the realm of possible. No, um, it wasn't. There just wasn't a pathway for someone like me that looked like me in my specialty to get to the place that I'm at now. Those doors opened up relatively late, I would say mid-kernel. Mid and that's, that's pretty late in your career to have doors opening up and to look back and say, would I have done anything different in my career? 
if the bar had been higher from the from the outset. But I, I really give a lot of credit to our first female Surgeon General, Lieutenant General uh, Patricia Horaho. She really changed the landscape um, in the Army, I think, for women, and particularly inside the Army Medical Department. Uh, and she broke down a lot of barriers. And then it continued with our next Surgeon General, General Nadja West, and it continues now uh, with, with um, General Scott Dingell. Um, I've been really proud to see what the Army's done with regard to uh, breaking down the institutional barriers, like I said. But I, I agree, we're, we're not there with some of our cultural barriers and some of, our, some of the bias that still exists in our ranks that prohibits the inclusiveness that would really make us better as a military. I think the framework that I try to reflect on is uh, I recently read a, a, a great book on inclusiveness, diversity, inclusion, uh, and, and the author frames things in terms of headwinds and tailwinds. And I try to use that construct in terms of how late in my career I saw what, what was possible. When I talk to younger uh, audiences, I try to use that headwind, tailwind framework in terms of, yep, there are times in your career when you're going against a headwind and things are against you and biases are slowing you down. But then there's there's always an opportunity to look for a tailwind where you can catch on to either a moment, a certain climate, or a certain leader who is about getting us where we need to be, and you can you can leverage that tailwind. And I, I don't mean to sound you know Pollyanna about it. But, but I do think we would do ourselves a disservice, even if today we, we acknowledge we still have a, a lot of work to do or a lot of ground to still gain if we don't reflect a little bit on really where we've been and, and what has gotten us to this point today. Colonel Aguilar, I'll give you a chance to weigh in on this, but I also want to present the question that I want each of you to answer, and that's how you would like to see things change for the next generation of officers coming behind you. So I went through ROTC and I went through field training in 1995. And at that time, there were some school, military schools, VMI and the Citadel in particular, that were still all male. And so when I went through field training, one of the uh, cadets in my flight was from one of those schools. And on the very first day, he said, I don't believe that women have a place in the military. I don't want to be part of an organization where I have to work with females. And so my thought was challenge accepted. And what I mean by that was I was going, it was my personal goal, that viewpoint, that frame of reference, if you will, was motivation for me to demonstrate to that individual that I could hang with him and that I did deserve to be here. Um, and so every time there was an opportunity to partner with somebody, I partnered with him. And at the end of that training, he said, I don't necessarily agree, he said, but I will admit that you gave me an, a different viewpoint um, that I had not seen before. And to me, that was, that was the little victory, right? That was, was what I was hoping to accomplish. Um, and then as I've progressed in my military career, I've never really stopped and, and looked around and, and you know, realized if I was the only person at, at the table. But yes, there were definitely moments. I was in a maintenance squadron as a young lieutenant, and less than 10% in the entire organization were, were females. Um, and so I guess that the point about using that, 
that motivation to drive change is, is how I've, I've operated. Um, and if I can be a positive role model to, to somebody else, I mean, yes, I, when I was a young lieutenant and I look at the wall of leadership, I did not see many women, if at all. And so now when I look at a wall of leadership and I see not only the, the physical diversity in our, in our appearance, but I look at the diversity of our experiences. And so I am not the first female to lead this organization. I actually followed another female, but I'm the first um, of my specialty. So my background is human resources, personnel. And so I'm the first personnelist to ever hold this position. And so I, I like to share that with people as well, because I think it gives hope to those in, in my community that you can be a wing commander. They're not always aviators or logisticians or engineers. Yes, are there, are there limited opportunities? Yes, that, that's a reality, but, but you can. And as far as barriers, I mean, we, we all face barriers. I mean, we, all of us on this call could, could go back and account for, for different bar barriers. But one barrier that I particularly noticed, particularly as a junior officer, was not at the hands of my male counterparts, but it was actually at the hands of some of my female counterparts. And I think part of that was because there were so few women at the table and there was this perspective that there wasn't enough room. So I, I have tried um, in my multiple opportunities to command to, instead of throwing elbows, like I say, um, open your arms and bring more people to the table because the more people that we have at the table with a diversity of perspective and a diversity of thought, it just makes an organization more effective. And so as I, as I think about what do I want that next generation um, of leaders to be, I, I, I don't want them to have to be concerned about having to fight for opportunities. I really want that generation to have the confidence that they can do anything that they set their mind to and that their perspective, uh, their value is welcomed. And again, as we've talked about diversity and inclusion, particularly here at JBear, I've really challenged our team to, to focus on our multiple layers of diversity, not just our, our external diversity. This is a fascinating conversation, and I wish we could keep going on and on and on because I could talk to you forever, but we've run out of time. But before we go, I do want to give everyone else an opportunity to weigh in on what things you would like to see change for the next generation of officers. General Lodi? I am also a mother. Both of my daughters are enlisted in the reserves, in the U.S. Army Reserves. My oldest daughter is right now finishing her cadet summer training out at Fort Knox, Kentucky. So I have a lot of uh, hopes and dreams for the next generation on a very personal level. I love the direction we're going in now with diversity and inclusion. I wish that were the case 30 years ago when I joined the Army. I want our Army to keep going on a trajectory where they realize that talent comes from all directions and talent takes all shapes and sizes and that leadership isn't one size fits all. I think we're headed in that direction. And I, I really hope that we continue to recognize that our, our past paradigms of what constitutes a good leader and what constitutes intelligence is different than the way we saw it previously, because certainly the nature of warfare is becoming more sophisticated. The battlefield is becoming more complicated and it will take the next generation of leaders have some have some pretty awesome challenges that if we don't get it right, what we consider talent 
and how we leverage diversity and inclusion, we'll have some problems executing our mission. Dr. Weeks and then Major Castleberry. And I would love to echo the other ladies' comments right now, but I want to take it in a different direction so that I bring something new to the table. And I think the Air Force, because I can't speak to my sister services, needs to really look at the family unit in 2020 and understand how our policies and our procedures need to evolve to meet the changing dynamic of the family unit. And it is no longer a 1950s construct where we have a person who goes to work and a person who stays at home. So we need to understand the realities of our individuals that are coming to serve selflessly and really understand how we can meet them in their goals when they join, when their goals when they get married or have a significant other, and the dynamics of their life that change so that we can retain that talent and continue to elevate it because I agree with General Lodi, the world is changing and our military is going to have very complex problems that our nation will need us to be able to meet and win. And that is going to take an understanding of what the world is like in 2020 and in beyond. Yes, I, I totally agree that the world is changing and our, our security threats are becoming more and more complex. The global security environment is more complex. So we need more inclusion. We need new ideas. And so moving forward with a homogeneous force does not make any sense. Make it more inclusive, heterogeneous makes more sense. It helps us uh, develop more effective solutions. But also what I would like to see moving forward is is continuously breaking down barriers. I like the direction we're going as far as, you know, in combat roles. But also when it comes to these new specialties like, you know, uh, space ops, electric electronic warfare, these new type of MOSs, I, we still have to do a better job, even though we're in like some in the initial phase of some of these uh, specialties. We have to make sure that we're including uh, different people to serve in these new specialties. Um, I feel that they, it tends to lack at times that we don't have enough women, enough people of color involved in these new specialties. But we have to be uh, forwardly even in the initial phase when it comes to uh, uh, including diversity. And also, too, what I would like to see moving forward is making sure that we're serving in more leadership roles, even in uh, in COCOMs that tend to grab more of the attention. Like, again, CENCOM, love to see more inclusiveness in terms of leadership roles as a, a woman serving in a, as a CENTCOM commander or PACOM, knowing that now there's a lot of attention looking at, um, at Asia Pacific. So we want to see more women in these leadership roles because when our allies and partners see it, they, they take that into account and they want to also echo the same thing. So we have to show that we value this. And last but not least, I totally agree when it comes to maternal leave, making sure that we are doing a better job, uh, you know, incorporating, including that people do go through family changes and, and there's family planning that is needs to be better managed in the services. So uh, just making sure we lean more forward in that direction. Thanks to all of you for a brilliant conversation. I really appreciate your being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. And thanks to everyone for listening. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.